Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal is to find uh, interesting and exceptional researchers and clinicians and scientists and CEOs and interview them and ask them questions that they maybe normally wouldn't get and bring that information to you, the listener. So today I have Kelly Eversole. Uh, she's a pioneer in agricultural genomics, biotechnology, and information technology. Um, she has two big initiatives that uh, it appears she works with uh, since 2005, the International Public-Private Consortium, the Wheat Genome, uh, wheatgenome.org. Uh, we're going to be talking about that a bit. And then uh, she's part of the Alliance for Phytobiomes Research, and that's phytobiomesalliance.org. So we're going to talk about uh, you know, both initiatives. If I try to describe them, I'll... I'll mess them up, so it's better to ask her. So, Kelly, thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, these, uh, you know, to, I don't know, to someone that doesn't know what you do, these sound like two unusually specific things to work on. But, you know, in your own words, what, why do you work on looking at wheat genomes, and what is this uh, Phytobiome Alliance? Sure, sure. So the, the wheat genome uh, effort was a, a really a, a way to try to build the foundation for a new paradigm in wheat breeding. It takes on average 12 to 15 years to develop one variety of wheat. And part of that is because it takes a long time to grow out the wheat and find the right uh, varieties to mix to then get the, the genes in. So one of the moments was really high sequence, we could then bypass some of those years of breeding by using computational tools and really looking at, at the genes in specific varieties and to do something that we call genome selection, genomic breeding. And one of the things to be able to do that is you have to have a high quality sequence that actually allows you to find the different genes. And as we've done and seen with the human genome, where we're, we're really targeting some uh, uh, medications and uh, pharmaceutical products or even healthcare uh, advice towards the genetic makeup of, of individuals. It's the same thing in wheat where we really want to be able to say, okay, we have a, uh, a drought problem. We want a, a drought resistant wheat or we have a disease problem. We need a disease resistant wheat. So how do we make sure that disease resistant genes are in the variety that we, we are selecting? And so the the genome sequence actually tells us which genes are in which varieties, and then we can increase the, the, the time that it takes or decrease the time that it takes to actually develop a new variety. And that's critical when you think about it, because if it takes 12 to 15 years to develop a variety or your target, by the time the disease hits and then you realize, well, we've got 12 or 15 years before we're going to have something to address it, then you just don't have the time to prevent it from wiping out 20 to 30 percent of, of the crop. And so that's really what the background of this was all about. And well, we quick, wanted... quick, uh, quick sure. question here. I don't know much about wheat. I, 
I've heard legend has it it's just you know one kind maybe with a few variations or just a few kinds like what is the state of most of the wheat that people eat is it diverse or no it is, there is quite a bit of diversity there are a lot of different varieties that are out there and varieties that are are established for different parts of uh, in the United States different parts of the country or different parts of the world wheat is the most widely grown crop and because it's the most widely grown, you do have a lot of different varieties. But in terms of, you know, a lot of people have said there's, um, that we have less genetic diversity than we used to. You know, there's been those claims, but it's really not true. We have as much genetic diversity of, as we've ever had. That doesn't mean we don't need more, but we've always had uh, quite a bit of genetic diversity. There's not just one variety of wheat that's grown. There's not even, uh, there's wheat that's tart targeted for uh, harvesting in the spring. There's wheat that's targeted for harvesting in, in, the, uh, in the fall. So it really just, it just varies. And the, um, the Phytobiome Alliance, can you go into that briefly? And then we'll yeah, ask so, questions back at both. Sure. So in some regards, the, the Phytobiomes Alliance uh, really was an outgrowth from my, from an intellectual standpoint for me because even though you might have the genome sequence of a plant, that plant, regardless of how much you know about that plant, is going to be influenced and its growth is gonna be influenced by what's in the environment. And we've, we've heard a lot of talk over the years about, you know, we want farmers and ranchers to uh, do things in a sustainable way and we make these assumptions what that means. And we have these broad sweeps that everybody needs to do uh, a particular practice on their farm and that therefore makes them sustainable. Well, the reality of it is it really depends on the specific site, the specific farm. I, I grew up in Southwest Oklahoma and what worked works in Southwest Oklahoma may not work in the state of New York, for example, and may not work even in a field a um, hundred miles away. So you know, there's really this need to understand what's going on in a particular field and then target things to that field and really give the growers that all the tools that they need to be able to uh, have sustainable production on their farm. And the whole concept of the phytobiome, it's a, it's a holistic systems approach. And it really, if you think about what the term means, phyto is simply a term for plant and biome means a specific space. So like when we often talk about the human gut microbiome, we're talking about the microbes in a particular, um, in, the, in the gut. So it's just literally related to the microbes in that human gut. In the phytobiome, we're talking about a, the plant in a particular environment or in a particular site. And so the concept is, can we begin to understand the, all the geophysical and biological components that impact and that affect the production of a plant in a particular field, of a plant on a, on a rangeland, or even our forest, looking at our forest, what's going on in that forest that would allow us to have both the best genetics, what's the best crop genetics, what's the best crop, or what's the best tree species for a particular area, and what's the best management practices, you know, when to, when and what kind of, of uh, nutrients do you put in the field or on the plant. So it's really trying to 
to move towards what we call uh, next generation precision agriculture. And if you think again about the movement in precision medicine, where we're trying to be able to target things specifically to individuals and have the combine the genetic information with their own lifestyles and, and, uh, and their activities and design their uh, medication packages based on that. In a similar way, we're trying to do that in agriculture and to really figure out what's the best thing for a particular space. Um, so that's the whole concept of the phytobiome. And it's, if you think about it, it's, it's really recognizing that we can't deal with things in a very reductionist manner. And it, it links with one of the things that just intellectually led me to it was even thinking about the wheat genome, even though we had, because it's so complex and it's, by the way, it's five times the size of the human genome. So it's really big. Huh. And and it's also a hexaploid, meaning that we have six copies of every chromosome. So it makes it really hard to, to deal with. Even if we understand that, and even if we perfect what we think is the you know, so-called best meat variety, it's only the best meat variety for a specific place. And so how do you then go that next step? And that those foundations that we've been able to build, both in terms of genomics and and really computational tools and technologies that have come out in the past you know, 10 or 15 years is now allowing us to move into this, this bigger area that says, okay, now we can really look at everything and start trying to piece different things together. Which, um, so what, we're being reductionist in the way that we're engineering new wheat and you know, let's say other plants and then just expecting whatever engineering we do to pan out. But I guess what, what we're ignoring is, again, the microbial attachment to that particular plant and how that will change. And then well, epigenetic changes from the plant, you know, being exposed to given environments and chemicals. And exactly. I guess a lot of things, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and if you think about, uh, and it's not just true in agriculture, but in science in general, even the way our the way we train scientists generally has been to put them in narrow fields, narrow disciplines. And that's great if they're going to do nothing but teach that narrow discipline, you know, and stay in academia and focus on that narrow discipline. The problem is, is if you want to get to application and you want to really look at the real world, the real world is not reductionist. It's extremely complex. And, you know, it's the only way we can really understand it is to embrace that complexity and get and move beyond uh, one discipline and think much much more in a way of what they call transdisciplinary research and transdisciplinary activities where you you know what is our problem our problem is increasing sustainable production on a particular farm well it takes agronomist soil scientist uh, fertilizer specialist uh, physi plant physiologist, plant geneticist, and the farmer to be able to really think about what we need to do on that. So we have to bring all of that together. And that's where, you know, we, ha we really need to move into embracing complexity. What does that mean? You know, to, we're, en we're engineering new types of wheat and, and other plants, but, uh, yeah. you know, so right it, now, again, it, not reductionist, like how, how can it be done in a smarter way? What, what's an example? So one example would be is that, you know, we bring, we really try to bring together, we look at a particular field and we look at a particular farm 
and we understand what's going on without a plant in that environment. So we understand the microbes, we understand what other insects or animals might be uh, in that field at various times, what birds might be passing through, um, what, what is going on in terms of the environment or um, wind erosion, et cetera. So you really have the understanding of the weather. And then you try to bring all the different components into one research project where you're, you're beginning to look at the network of interactions. So you tweak one aspect if you, for example, if you, um, maybe you want to change the microbial uh, community that's in a particular field because you can now put um, microbes in that would make the plant or make any plant or a particular plant um, have more uptake of nitrogen, for example. And so you you can't do that in isolation. You've got to do that. Okay, what if what if I do add these microbes? Then I need to understand what that does to the plant itself, to the physiology of that plant. So you've got to have all of those disciplines at the table. And that's really what we're trying to do within the Phytobiomes Alliance is to get all of these disciplines to talk to each other and to realize that we need to work together to solve these problems. And we don't need, uh, for example, just to understand what the physical components of soils might be, which tends to be where the soil scientists go. We need to understand the microbial communities there, what treatments or management practices a grower might be using in any given year, et cetera. So what's an example of uh, doing it right or doing it wrong? And what, you know, what is the result? No yield, low yields. Uh, I mean, but like, how do you know when you're doing things the right way? What, do you, yeah. what, what has to be done? Well, we're just now getting started in this. And so one of the greatest challenges is even to begin to, to, to see how many different components we can actually bring together at one particular time. But one impact might be we can substantially reduce the amount of runoff for uh, pesticide runoff, fertilizer runoff, et cetera, on the, a particular farm. And so in, to improve the environmental uh, sustainability of a farm just by tweaking the uh, plant genetics and combining it with maybe what a microbial product that could be added to the soil. Um, we are just getting started, so we don't. We don't have concrete examples yet, but there are a lot of promising areas that are starting to, to surface, even from a standpoint of understanding weather on a particular farm for a number of years and seeing what those patterns would be. So, so is this experimentation taking place? And, you know, is there any interesting observations about, um, you know, when a new genetically modified plant uh, is on the scene, you know, what has been observed that was intended and unintended? Any examples? Ah, so, so we're not, I'm not really talking, when I talk about genomics, I think there's, there is this idea that in agriculture, that means genetically modified crops. And that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Um, you can use genomics and use the tools of genomics to create crops in a conventional manner. It just shortens the, the time that it, it takes to do that. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of impacts, we've been seeing, you know, a lot of impacts in, in terms of 
of genomic breeding primarily in crops that have had a genome sequence for a number of years, such as rice. There has been of the time it takes to go from uh, discovery to actual commercial, commercial release of, of hybrids or, or varieties. But, you know, in, in, I guess I don't really completely understand what you mean in terms of, it, you know, unintended effects or unintended. Yeah, if you, okay, so, you know, they'll, they'll, again, certain plants or crops have been engineered. And then I don't know if you've observed when they've first gone into production in someone's field. And what what things happened that were intended, what things happened that were unintended ah, yeah. or inexplicable. Yeah, so it's not necessarily inex it's it, it's not that it's inexplicable. It's more that um because of the specific environment that something is in, a variety, for example, that might get as much as a hundred bushels per acre might not get a hundred bushels per acre on a particular farm. And so that and then you have to figure out, well, why is that the case? What is the, um, you know, were the management practices different? Were the, did the weather have an impact? Did you have a disease problem? Or did you have a, a um, an insect outbreak that impacted your variety that year? You know, so you really have to understand it from, from those perspectives. Or, in, you know, in some cases, it might be that simply a farmer's field is, it might be in different, has different microclimates, um, you know, for example, and that, and that might actually be because of the, the nature of that field. It might be surrounded, a part of it might be surrounded by trees. So you might have a small microclimate on one end of a field. The other aspect that becomes, and that we've learned, we're learning more and more about is the fact that the soil is very different. Even if you have an open field, um, for example, my very, my small field, small farm in, in Oklahoma has three different uh, soil types in that field, and so it's that in itself is going to impact that variety. And right now, the only thing that we're able to do is to really look at the how many uh, different varieties are available on the market, and then you pick one and you plant it across the whole field, but you're going to get different results depending on the field itself. And that's what with the phytobiomes effort, we're really trying to get an understanding of how do we really target for a particular field and the different parts of that field. And where we've seen the most advances in understanding this site-specific uh, agriculture is in the area of fertilizer and really applying specific amounts of fertilizer to a particular acre of land, for example. And that's built up over time because we we have data. We have maybe in some cases they have 10 or 15 years of data on with the grids of that particular acre and how it is impacted by different levels of, of fertilizer. And so you really try to, you know, what's the what's the right amount of fertilizer for that particular acre of land and what's what's the right uh, application rate, what's the right time that you want to put it on, and that in, you know will ensure that you have a higher sustainability, less runoff, uh, etc. And that's interesting. I guess, uh, you know, you might think a field of plants is just a monolithic thing, but you're right, there's different microclimates. Bugs may visit part of a field and not other parts. Uh, the, the angle of the sunlight, the soil beneath them, um, you know, you treat the field with a given fertilizer 
because of the the elevation or the gradation of the uh, you know the underlying dirt, it may run from one place to another preferentially and and pool. I mean, I guess there's tons of factors that would affect it. That's exactly right. And I and you know in the past we've not really been able to capture that. One, we didn't have the tools to capture it and not the tools that would be cost effective. But secondly, you know, uh, we just didn't have the computational ability that even if we could get all the data, we couldn't manipulate the data and figure out what's really going on here. And that's where we are today is we have those kinds of opportunities now. And I think, you know, the uh, the advancements that have been made in machine learning and artificial intelligence have really opened up a complete new field for looking at agriculture in a, in a very different way and really thinking about not only a farmer's field, but your garden. You know, what does your garden look like? What should you do with your, with your garden? And I know there's, you know, there, particularly these days in the time of the, the people are producing a lot or planting a lot of their vegetable seeds. Um, right now, there's, I read somewhere there's been an increase in the production or in the sales of vegetable seeds in the past month, thanks primarily, I think, to COVID-19. But, you know, what, how do you, as a, as a homeowner, how do you actually plant your garden? And how do, you know, do you just go to the, uh, your local garden store and ask, uh, him or her or the person at the garden store what you should put on your your uh, garden but that person has no knowledge of what kind of a garden you have what's what is that in the in the in your soil what kind of soil is it you know what kind of slope do you have i mean there are you know just a lot of different factors that impact the production of a particular plant and that's what we want to get a handle on and we want to empower the ability for anyone to be able to to know that and one of the areas that and this is where kind of the genomics piece comes in one of the areas that is the most exciting is that we're now seeing the, the ability to understand what microbes are in in a field what what is there now and you know when we first started in this area about 15 years ago you know no one thought we'd be able to to do genome sequencing of of a particular soil because the number of microbes are astronomical compared to the human there's like 70 to 80,000 microbes in any given piece of in any given uh, soil samples so how do you even deal with that and but now you can because the cost has gone down, the computational capacity is there, and you know we can finally begin to develop the information that we need to change how we think about agriculture and change how we produce. You, um, has it been observed that there's a plant-to-plant -plant communication in a given yes. field? Yes. Well, if you do something to plants on one side of the field that you know, the effect will be seen on the other side? Yeah, there is. We do know there's been, there's communications. And that's one of the, one other aspect of the area of phytobiome is to understand what other plants might be in the area. For example, what weeds might be in the area, what, um, you know, in some cases, farmers plant uh, what they call buffer strips, where it's a plant to try to hold the soil in or to filter environmental contaminants. Um, you know, what impact is that having on a particular plant? And, you know, that we don't really know. 
um, some of the plant-to-plant -plant communication that they're just now beginning to understand is simply the same variety, but it's a, you know, in a different field or and it's because of the, maybe because of the uh, pollination method. So how do you go about uh, tackling um, optimizing a field or at least I guess first is putting sensors or looking at a field, uh, you know, sequencing the soil, like you said. Like, what, so if you're going to have a project, what would that look like? Would you just have a, you know, you start with like, a, I don't know, a planter box or like a real small area, maybe a, a 10 foot by 10 foot plot and see what you can do to optimize that plot? Like, how would mm -hmm. you experimentally carry this out? Yeah, I think it really depends on the field itself. Um, it's, you know, one of, the one of the questions we get and we're trying to deal with all the time is how much of a field do you need to sample to get a good idea of what's in the field? Uh, and that's true whether it's just straight physical characteristics of soil or whether you're actually also doing the microbial uh, sequencing and trying to understand the metagenomic communities that are in that field. Um, and so I think right now what we're trying to do is to try it at different levels. We're looking at, you know, small plots uh, to very large fields. And by large fields, you know, we're, we're talking five or six acre fields and there are different trials going on in in different parts of the, of the world where they're trying to see if there is a difference um, right now the cost is not low enough for us to do it on every acre or or uh, you know really to get all the to drill all the way down even to a, a square foot um, level but you know that the goal is do we really have to get there you know can we develop some models that would allow us to then know that if we we can do it on 20 percent of the field in a random uh, selection and that will give us a good enough picture that we can actually use and the same is true for for weather you know bringing in the climate impacts how many years of weather do we need to look at to begin to understand what the patterns might be for that particular field and what weather had what impact the weather had had on different years of production so uh, any results from experimentation that's been going on already where you're seeing uh, interesting differences in a field uh, not really yet because it's we're not sampling a broad enough um, pool yet uh, we're still quite a bit of ways from actually having that we do know that uh, we are seeing tremendous differences in already in fertilizer, starting to see differences in what we call uh, seeding rates, where you can actually put less seeds uh, down in a particular acre than you would in another acre because it grows better or it doesn't grow as well. So you're, you're changing that. So that kind of activity is already going on. And there is... Uh, I think some of the companies are beginning to look at microbial products and um, that that would go on to a field that would increase the nitrogen uptake or would increase the uh, drought resilient, for example. And from my understanding on some of those, they're beginning to get an idea of exactly how much they need to sample uh, a particular field before they put their products down. So um, what do you have, do you particularly have any projects in the works right now that uh, are going to be involved in figuring out what's going on with the fields or are you yeah. more of an overseer of, uh, of what's happening? So we've got some projects that we're developing uh, at this point. One, one that we're putting together right now that would be an international project 
and it's really will take us all the way from um, breeding to adding different microbial products to particular uh, vegetable and legume uh, crops and that will give us some kind of a an understanding of what kind of uh, biological products might be useful to help with the nutrients of the particular crop for example health benefits of a particular uh, crop and if we get that one funded then that'll be our first major one that really tries to do it at an international level there are others who are doing others not uh, not me personally but within our consortium who are doing uh, different components of, of the uh, phytobiome. A lot of it has been focused on trying to understand the microbial communities in uh, agricultural fields. And so that is going on. Others are working more specifically on trying to combine uh, nutrient use with the microbes and the plant. And so there are pieces that are starting to get put together, but not that I am particularly involved in. Really what we what we do is I'm usually leading one particular leading or a PI, a co-PI on one one or two particular projects and then but overall we're trying to uh, increase the collaboration and increase the coordination among a variety of international. So what's the best way for, um, for people to find out more about the initiatives and you know keep an eye on on the learnings that are going to come from this? We have a, a couple of websites. Uh, I think you mentioned them in the beginning for the Wheat Genome Project, which is continuing and we're trying to drill down more and even expand the diversity in wheat. You can find information at www.wheatgenome.org. And for the Phytobiomes Alliance, um, that is uh, website is www.phytobiomesalliance.org. And then for generally to see a number of the projects in which I'm involved and those on my team are involved, um, we also have a website at www.eversolassociates.com. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Kelly, thank you for coming. And, you know, I wish you knew now, but uh, we'll have to revisit when you get some more juicy details on, uh, on yeah. you know, what happens and how much yield can increase and how much more understanding can come from Yeah, that. so we do have, I mean, there is some results, at least from what people are reporting. Um, some of the science publications have shown that you can get, you know, five or 10% increase in yield by using specific biological products that enhance the microbial communities in a particular field. But, but again, that's just looking at a couple of different components. It's not bringing in, you know, the full scope, but, you know, that, takes time as as you well know from your work and the and focus on a lot of the biomedical well very good kelly thank you for coming on the podcast and i appreciate it well thank you very much richard it's been a pleasure you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs if you like what you hear be sure to review and subscribe to the finding genius podcast on itunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and Want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.